Good evening and welcome to the LSE. My name is Simon Glendinning and I'm the director of the Forum for European Philosophy and uh, normally I would be here simply to chair a dialogue event but I've got dragged into this one to excuse me both introducing myself and participating. Um, these dialogue sessions have various formats. Uh, they began with um, two people in conversation where one of those people had a long and distinguished career. As you can see, you're not one of those tonight. Um, in another of the formats, uh, we look at some long and distinguished idea, which in some ways this is right for, but it, it doesn't really fit either. And then the, the third um, kind of dialogue type that we've got is where we talk about some interesting event. Well, I think today's is just this week's hot topic. It's uh, the meaning of life. Um, it's almost this week's hot topic, because for reasons that I think we will talk about, uh, in post-war Britain, in philosophy departments, philosophers didn't talk about the meaning of life. And... And I'll, I think we'll want to talk about why, in a general sense, not in a rather boring institutional sense, but about why it became possible for that to be so. Analytic philosophy dominated <coughs> British philosophy in the post-war period, and, and before indeed, um, and it was dominated in turn by logic and philosophy of mind, and was, as, as a way of doing philosophy, something that we might now call, in, in a kind of looking back at it, a very secular kind of way of doing philosophy. But creeping out of the corner, of the little dark corner, um, people did start raising questions which seemed to be more fundamental, either about ethics or about meaning in a rather richer sense than just the meaning of the word, uh, what kind of more is, that um, occupied philosophers. Um, and in 1976, for example, a very distinguished British philosopher called David Wiggins wrote a paper, or delivered a paper, called Truth, Invention and the Meaning of Life. And it, it, it sort of seemed to me to have almost appeared out of nowhere. And... Uh, and he begins like this, it's a very interesting beginning. Even now, 1976, even now, in an age not given much to mysticism, there are people who ask, what is the meaning of life? Not a few of them make the simple, unphilosophical assumption that there is something to be known here. And most of these same people make the equally unguarded assumption that the whole issue of life's meaning presupposes some positive answer to the question whether it can be plainly, straightforwardly true that this or that thing or activity or pursuit is good or has value or is worth something. Finally, something even harder, they suppose that questions like that of life's meaning must be among the central questions of philosophy. The question of life's meaning are not at the centre of philosophy as we now have it. And that was absolutely clearly true in 1976 in Britain, although it's also true that in uh, 
in Europe, continental Europe, perhaps philosophy was going in, on in ways which were in some sense more congenial, at least to raising the question. But generally speaking, these rather ambitious efforts were rare. And, but they're less rare today. And I know, I know a number of professional philosophers who are grateful to the fact that they can now start writing about, um, as it were, the, the deepest questions of human life in philosophy without embarrassment. And um, again, I think it's an interesting question. Well, why is that? Why has it become possible again to talk about life's meaning? And so if we're thinking about modernity uh, and our time, uh, we today are going to try to think a little bit more about issues around the meaning of life and uh, why it is or isn't an issue for us. Um, there's me here, uh, um, who I've just said who I am, and this is Edward Skidelsky, who's from the University of Exeter, uh, who has written about these themes himself. Now, uh, you'll see we don't agree on everything. We may not even agree on very much. We'll see. Um, but that's, uh, that's probably a good thing. Um, there will probably be almost as many views on the topic as there are people in the room. And uh, we want to hear some of those. And we're, we're going to actually give a, take a little break in the middle of our conversation to uh, let questions that have piled up just at the first sequence of thoughts um, and, and sort of take questions in the, in the, after a first phase of discussion. And then we'll go back and talk again for a little bit more. And then we'll have time at the end for further extended discussion and contributions from you. Uh, I'm going to kick off with a thought that we think we both share, so it's a good place to start, which is about um, why it might be that discussion about the meaning of life had gone away, gone off the radar a little bit in philosophy and, and elsewhere in, in academic life and perhaps even in public life. And the sort of background to that that Edward and I think is important to bring to the fore is <coughs> something that in academia as it goes by the very dull name of the secularisation thesis. Now the secularisation thesis was developed in different ways by different thinkers, everyone has their particular take on the way it should be presented and described. But sociologists like Weber and Durkheim and Marx in his way all thought they could describe the historical movement of Europe, predominantly of Europe, uh, in terms which understood it as making a very dramatic transition from an origin which was primitive, savage, barbaric, nearly animal, an animal condition for man, man moving through stages slowly, slowly, in which there is develop developments of society, soci society becoming, um, for example, um, <coughs> dominated by myth or um, some uh, origin stories of a society, or superstitions, or religion. And that you would have this passage, this historical passage, from this primitive 
origin. Moving through ages dominated by myth, superstition and religion. And then some kind of radical breakthrough into modernity, where European humanity breaks from a traditional past, a past of tradition dominated by myth, superstition and religion, into a time where these are disclosed as illusions which we shed in the name of reason and science and some kind of progress. This is all a movement of progress towards a kind of ideal end of humanity, an ideally civilised condition, to be understood in different ways, but in each case it'll be one which has been enabled by this break from the past, this break from, amongst other things, religion. And uh, the secularisation thesis is that this movement into scientific technological modernity is one that will see all those old traditional ways wither. So you have the withering away of myth, superstition and religion. And this end of history towards which we're moving will be one which will be free, in which we will have emancipated ourselves from these uh, illusions and myths. So the secularisation thesis became sort of matter of course for European intellectuals in the 19th and 20th century. So by the time people are writing and thinking and developing in universities philosophy and uh, sociology, it's, it's the unquestioned background that, of course, there are these still <coughs> numbers of relatively crude, foolish believers around, but they are on the way out. And the proper methods will be scientific, rational, and won't really have anything to do with religion at all and that's the old world and the new world and the world to come will be free of those and the secularisation thesis lodged in the lives of 19th and 20th century intellectuals in Europe and were our matter of course background for thinking about our world Now, before we think about the secularisation thesis, the, this movement towards the, as it were, the becoming secular of the world, for many people, will have raised a problem, which they may have been quite quiet about, but there it is. It's that religion, for example, but perhaps especially religion, was the discourse through which we could grasp what David Wiggins says is the unphilosophical assumption that there's something to be known about the meaning of life and that religion is the discourse is historically the discourse through which we are able to grasp what's there to be known about the significance of our lives and that when religious discourse falls away and you're just left with secular in the world mundane life 
really, is there anything more to it than shopping? That's the sort of bottom line. Whether, uh, as some people put it in the, in the 1940s, we sort of now uh, pay homage simply to the standard of living. And that's it. And that you have uh, nothing better. Now, of course, many of the, as we'll see, many of the people who developed the secularization thesis really thought there was a, a promised land ahead, an end of history to come, which would um, be some kind of uh, realization of, 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 of human flourishing. And so they wouldn't have thought at all that uh, it was a life without meaning. But for many people, um, the death of God was a profoundly worrying um, event for Western European humanity. And so the worry is that secularization will result in a life devoid or deprived of meaning, and you just have this nihilistic, believing anything, believing nothing situation. <laughs> and I think the question that we want to begin with is whether the secularization thesis is something we should continue to give credence to. And Edward, you're going to take off from that point. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think secularization, however you understand it, does raise the problem of the meaning of life in a particularly acute way. But um, before we come to that, um, let's, let's ask the factual question, is the secularization thesis true? Um, is the world becoming more and more secular as it becomes more and more modern? Um, because many sociologists have started to question this. Um, uh, within Europe, there does seem to be an ongoing decline in reported religious belief and religious attendance. That, that seems to be a well-established fact. But in the world as a whole, outside Europe, religion is flourishing. There's no sign of any decline. Um, um, in America, religious attendance remains very strong. Um, between 40 and 50 percent of people say they attend church every week. In fact, that, that's thought to be an exaggeration. Many of them don't, but they say they do. Um, um, in Latin America, um, Catholic Christianity is declining, but um, Pentecostalism is, is flourishing. Um, so there's been no overall decline in religiosity. Uh, evangelical forms of Christianity are flourishing in, in Africa, in East Asia. Um, uh, then, of course, you have the various forms of fundamentalism, Christian, Muslim, Jewish. Um, so there doesn't seem to be o any overall worldwide decline in religious belief. Um, so increasingly, Europe, um, instead of being the, the model that the rest of the world will eventually catch up with, is starting to look like the exception. Um, and sociologists have started to talk about the, you know, the European exception. And this, this is a kind of in-joke, because previously the talk was always of the American exception. Yeah, the idea was that we're all becoming more secular, but America is the great exception. And now this has been stood on its head. Uh, you know, the world remains religious, but Europe is exceptionally secular. Um, um, and then the, the question obviously arises, what, you know, why, why is this? Why, um, why is Europe so exceptionally secular? And no one quite knows, but there are a number of explanations that have been put forward. Um, one explanation, which... Um, has been put forward by, by a colleague of mine at Exeter, the sociologist uh, Grace Davy, is that the European churches 
have a particular close relationship with um, uh, nation states, um, and they're often state churches, particularly in the Protestant North, or even in the Catholic South, they have quite a close relationship with uh, you know, their respective nation states. They're, as it were, bearers of national identity, national memory. And as uh, national feeling weakened in Europe, so attachment to the national church has also weakened. Um, and this is not a situation that exists elsewhere in the world. Um, I mean, for a start, national feeling remains much stronger, and you don't have national churches in quite the same sense. So that's, that's one explanation of why Europe is, is so different. Um, another interesting explanation is that what we might be looking at here is not so much a, a weakening of religiosity itself, but a, uh, a general uh, decline in institutional affiliation. Um, because it's notable that um, membership of a lot of other civil society institutions, particularly political parties and trade unions, has also declined in the last 30 years, and to roughly the same degree. So it could be that people no longer define themselves um, uh, in, in terms of attachment to particular public institutions in the way they used to. Uh, their identities are more private, more fragile, more shifting. Um, uh, so that could be another explanation of this decline in uh, uh, church attendance in Europe um, uh, yeah, there are others which we've been talking about which is um, a, perhaps a contrast between decline in religious practice on the one hand mm. and uh, no parallel retreat in religious belief now this, this can be looked at in lots and lots of ways, but the general thought will be that it was always wrong to look at Europe as an exception at all anyway. Now, this is the most sort of radical end of this. It's not only to say, well, actually, Europe has become the only exceptionally <coughs> secular uh, continent in, on the planet, uh, and that the rest of the world is carrying on in its gloriously religious ways as if nothing had happened, but that... Europe fundamentally remains as religious as it ever was, pretty much. That the number of people who are uh, self-identify as having um, something like religious beliefs it still remains remarkably high. In, in Britain, in the last census, census it was over 70%. Okay, so over 70%, saying they were Christian, actually, not just... Um, uh, saying that they were religious. Something like 50% or 47% said they believed in God. So there's a rather strange mismatches at various points here. But, um, but, the point, but, but in a way that makes the point that there's, there's a, uh, there may be a, a sort of cultural transformation in um, religious practice, but without having really seriously fundamental transformations in religious belief. One uh, sociologist I've been looking at talks about um, th the new patterns of religiosity in Europe. Instead of being bound to um, um, religious authorities and um, like ecclesiastical authorities, the church and so on, um, the, the new models would be that of a pilgrim who's on a, on a spiritual search or of a convert who rather late in life become, comes to see their own light, life in a spiritual light and so not perhaps changing their beliefs at all uh, I, I remember going to a conference and, and meeting a German sociologist 
who'd grown up in post-war Germany fighting for a secular, a secular political public space. And um, he thought of himself at that time as trying to uh, develop a society which, had, which would have liberated itself from um, religion. And he, he says that he came at one point walking down his street in Germany to come to recognise, my God, I'm a Christian. But it's saying that the whole structure of his life was still, as it were, saturated by uh, Christian values, Christian religious significance, a Christian <coughs> calendar and so on. And the, the very space that he was inhabiting, this public space which had in, in some ways been emancipated from religious authority was not exactly uh, um, free of a religious conception. I don't know if you want to yeah. pick up on that point. I, mean, I, I, I think, I mean, I agree that there, there has clearly been a transition from more institutional forms of religion to more private, tentative uh, forms. Um, but I, I don't see this as a refutation of the secularization thesis. I think it's proof of it. Um, because I think religion you know, is a matter of collective practice or it isn't anything at all. Um, I think these, these more private, you know, spiritual forms of religion um, <coughs> you know, represent a retreat of religion, really. Um, I don't think they're sustainable in the long run. Uh, you know, there has to be some shared system of symbols, some shared worship. Um, but, but, so I, but my worry here is that I think, I think that my own view, and, and it's yeah, this is quite an odd situation because uh, Edward, as it were, is the believer and I'm the non-believer, and I'm the one who thinks that the secularization thesis has been completely blown out of the water by the facts of, of the world as they are today, and, and Edward still thinks that there's something worryingly true about what's going on, as it were, um, that, that secularization is a movement away from or, or an, an, uh, an uprooting of um, religious belief and practice. Um, but I, I, I may, I, maybe we should open this at this point, but my, my general feeling is that at a certain point, quite recently, uh, people have turned around and looked at their world and thought that this religion, which was meant to be going away, was not going away at all. Okay, it could come in new guises, new, new um, forms, and, and yes, decline in thumbs on pews and all that sort of stuff, but, but religiosity, some kind of spirituality, not necessarily to be thought now as myth, superstition, etc. You have to change your whole way of conceiving what's going on, but very much still there and not going anywhere. Can I just yeah. say one more thing before we open it up? I, but I, I think there is nonetheless this to be said in favour of the secularisation thesis, that um, the dominant institutions of the Western world, indeed the world, um, proceed uh, in their daily life without any reference to religion. Um, and, and, and this point was made very nicely by um, a political scientist, Sanjay Seth, in a seminar I went to on Friday. Um, he said, as, as a scientist, you might be, um, you know, you might be a believer, um, but if you send off a, an academic paper to Nature or Mind or whatever, in which you ascribe a certain event to the influence of Shiva, let's say, you will lose your job pretty quickly. Um, that will be the end of your career. You won't be taken seriously again. And the same would be true if you were a, a 
I don't know, central banker trying to set the rate of interest, and you quoted the Bible, so Okay, so there are these, you know, these powerful institutions, powerful discourses, such as you know, uh, the academy, corporations, banks, uh, states, um, which are sort of procedurally secularist. They, 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 you know, they go about their business without reference to God. Um, and this is, this is very different from the situation in the past, where religion permeated every aspect of life, permeated the economy, permeated politics, permeated family life, okay, the educational system. Let, let's, let's, there's a quote from uh, Wiggins that we looked at that we could probably have our pause with, um, where he tries to describe that change from, okay. from the situation where religion permeated life to one where it doesn't. He says... Um, now again, this is 1976, so he's writing at the height of the Cold War, well, sort of in the Cold War period, and uh, there, there are naiveties in here, and, or there are dimensions of this which are almost unrecognisable now. But anyway, he says, unless we are Marxists, we are more resistant in the second half of the 20th century than the 18th or 19th centuries knew how to be to attempts to locate the meaning of human life or human history in mystical or metaphysical conceptions in the emancipation of mankind, or progress, or the onward advance of absolute spirit. It's not that we've lost interest in emancipation or progress themselves, but whether temporarily or permanently, we have more or less abandoned the idea that the importance of emancipation or progress is that these are marks by which our minute speck in the universe can distinguish itself as the spiritual focus of the cosmos. That's the the big change that one could see here. Um, right, does anybody have any, any questions or contributions at this point? We can keep moving. Yeah. I just want to say, aren't you taking a very, very Christian look? Because um, two things, really. First of all, obviously, Christianity is communal. If you took something like Islam, it's mostly the men who go, certainly with Orthodox Judaism, it's the men who would go to the synagogue, not the women, and they're very much involved in private forms of devotion or worship. Um, in which case, this whole idea that you need to have communal worship for, for it to be a proper religion, I, I would take issue with. Yeah. Um, but also, it's, it's a very Christian thing, I think, the whole secularisation piece is, you know, Islam's on the rise. Um, and, and everything within Islam is Islamic. The world is Islamic. Okay, um, thank you. Would you, mind, would you mind repeating the essence of that question? It's a bit difficult to hear that. Oh, what me? No, no, you can, you can, you can bring the question <laughs> into your answer. Shall I? Yeah. Um, okay, so two two questions. Um, as for the first, I, I, I mean, that you're saying Christianity is m- more communal than some other religions. Than um, no, but for both sexes, it, okay. both sexes can well. It's, it's as easy for men and women within Christianity, within certainly within ultra orthodox and within orthodox Judaism. It's much more men who would go to synagogue, and okay. also within Islam, it's, it's much more male. In, in Judaism, there's a, as I understand it, I'm not Jewish, but, but there is a, a lot of ritual at home. Which, yes, which, but it's not necessarily communal. Well, but it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's not purely individual either. Um, I mean, it's centred on the family. It is. So, and in Islam, I mean, there are, you know, I mean, the Hajj, um, you know, is, is a great public mm. ritual. So, uh, I think. I mean, they do. They do have. I mean, well, Islam particularly has a, has a sort of a, a public and legal dimension to it. I mean, so it's certainly not a purely private, spiritual religion. Um, in fact, I think that description fits Christianity <coughs> closely. 
Um, um, yeah, but the secularisation would then apply more to Christianity than, say, to Islam. I think, yeah, I mean, I think... Um, so it's, it, does that not yeah. make just the secularisation thesis itself purely Christian? I think we want to talk about this. So put, put the point, let's try and get the point out as clearly as you can. Why might there be something distinctively Christian about the secularised secularisation thesis? Well, the definition of religion, for a start, it's a Western construction, something like Hinduism, is it a religion, is it a life way? There's, there's some issues there anyway. But very often if you think of religion, you tend to think of the, the main Abrahamic faiths, and yeah. particularly Christianity. Right. But why has secularisation thesis got anything to do with Christianity? I mean, a lot of Christians would have said this is a very worrying development. Well, Islam is inherently religious. Yeah. Um, you know, everything okay. is Islamic, so you've got banking and... Well, and but, well but you have, you have secular states in many parts of the Muslim world um, and universities which teach Western secular science. But Islam itself... True, and that creates a big tension, I mean, yeah. as we know. So, I... Um, I mean, it may be that the, the resistances to secularisation are more powerful in the non-Christian world, but it doesn't mean that there hasn't been significant secularisation. Um, uh, I mean, um, I, I mean you know, I, even in the Muslim world, they teach science you know, in the Western way, i.e. without reference to God. I, I have to. Edward, I, I've got a way of making your point. I, I don't know if it is your point exactly, but the... the, the connectedness of secularization in the West as it's actually developed in the way we've, we've, we're sort of agreeing that it has in the way that Wiggins says that there was this time when we thought of ourselves as God and God's purposes for man were at the centre of our understanding of the world and the significance of our lives and now for a lot of people it's not. That doesn't mean they are atheists at that point. It means that they're just not thinking about themselves in that kind of way and, and may think about themselves in ways which are broadly secular. Now, I want, I want to suggest that that becoming secular of the world really is closely connected to the becoming Christian of Europe in a deep way, and, and perhaps in another way than you're suggesting. Here's a, a quote from Sartre. Now, Sartre, again, actually, funnily enough, writing in the early 1970s. So, clearly, early 1970s, something's going on here. But um, uh, he's writing in the second half of the 20th century, sketching the outline of a conception uh, written in the second half of the 19th century by Flaubert. And he says this. Flaubert writes for a world which is Christian, and we are all Christians, even today. The most radical disbelief is still Christian atheism. In other words, it retains, in spite of its destructive power, schemata which are controlling, slightly for our thinking, more for our imagination, above all for our sensibility. And the origins of these schemata are to be sought in the centuries of Christianity, of which we are the heirs, whether we like it or not, and indeed one might say whether we know it or not, that this, so secularity, what we have to begin to think of it as unfolding from a movement of centuries of Christianity. It didn't fall from a cultural tree that was uh, um, 
empty. Yeah. Yeah. And can, just to follow up on that point, there's been a, a revival of militant atheism in recent years, as, as you all know. Um, you know, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, you know, have all written polemics against religion. Um, but I, I think they're far more indebted to Christianity than they themselves realise. Uh, they're what you might call Christian atheists, um, or inverted Christians even. Um, and I think the debt is twofold. Um, first of all, their, their conception of religion, the conception of religion that they attack, is one that's very much modelled on Christianity, and one which has belief at its centre. So they take religion to be belief in the existence of gods and other supernatural entities. And that, I think, is a, is a, is a Christian conception of religion, or, or more specifically, it's a certain deistic construal of Christianity. It doesn't apply very well to other great world religions. Um, it doesn't apply at all to Hinduism, for example, which is you know, more a social system than a set of beliefs. Um, and it applies less well to Judaism and Islam. Um, so that's one respect in which they're very Christian. Uh, another respect in which they're inadvertently Christian is in their missionary ambitions. And they, you know, they want the whole world to become atheist. Uh, they think they're in possession of the truth and they want to you know, blaze it abroad. And that's a very monotheistic way of looking at things. Um, if you take, a, let's say, an ancient Roman magistrate or a, or a, or a Confucian Mandarin, I mean, they might have had a, you know, a kind of amused contempt for the folk religions that surrounded them, and they certainly wouldn't have taken part in them themselves. But they, they would have had no ambition to, to eliminate them. Um, on the contrary, they would have regarded them as you know, very useful for maintaining civic order and perhaps rather charming and colourful. Um, so this, this you know, ambition to, you know, to remake the world in accordance with your own particular conception of truth is a, is, a, is a monotheistic one. I think this, so. this missionary idea is a very good one, and in fact I think that they're, they're, uh, they're, it runs deeper than that still. Um, the conception of history that I introduced at the beginning, the discourse of modernity, which moved humanity progressively from um, some savage animal distant past through myths and superstitions up to some glorious ideal end, that story runs profoundly parallel to um, what was called providential history and theodicy within the Christian tradition. So the idea was that, that, that all the terrible things that we see going on in the world today and every day that happened, uh, we're to understand this as... Um, uh, being, we can compen compensate for present suffering because there is a redemptive end to come in which uh, in God's plan for man will have been worked out and as it were there will be some final end of things some messianic eschatology where the whole of the order of creation finds itself in some sort of perfect order well that religious idea of a religious <laughs> theodicy theodicy being the justification of God in history um, can be translated very rapidly into the sort of um, uh, conception, conception of history where it's the emancipation of the rational subject or the emancipation of the working subject which is going to end up in some glorious end of history uh, where um, all the terrible things that have happened will have worked themselves out. These are secularizations of 
Christian, distinctively Christian conceptions of, um, of, of, of providence. And so I, I think that one of the most important points we can make, or I'd like to make here, is for us to see how fundamentally Christian is the secular world that we live in. I and mean, one of the things, I'm going to grab something you were going to say, but I'm sorry, um, which is uh, that Christianity has within it already conceptual resources for um, the idea of a distribution between the secular and the sacred within its own doctrine. So you have Jesus in Matthew saying, um, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and render unto God what belongs to God. That idea of the possibility of a separation is, as we're inside the Christian heritage. And so the secularity that we see today <coughs> shouldn't be seen as a sort of external imposition on a Christianity which, which is withering. Uh, yeah, you've got, you've got a number of questions. I'm going to take them now. Um, there's one, two, three, four. And you, uh, you, for both for the people listening at home, you have to speak up, and for the people at the back, please speak up. So one at the front here. Yeah, in terms of this uh, disagreement about the secularisation thesis, um, I think I think you're right, Edward, that the the modern missionary atheists are much inferior to, for example, uh, Nietzsche, who fully recognise his own debts to Christianity in the Antichrist, in Zarathustra, and above all in the final essay, The Genealogy of Morality, where he acknowledges it in an absolutely kind of full-blown full blown way. But I also agree with you that, and disagree with, with Simon that I think the secularisation thesis is to a considerable extent true. I think far more significant than these missionary atheists uh, is simply the endless kind of drip-drip effect of uh, materialism, consumerism, uh, the, value, the values of, of selfishness and realising your dreams through advertising, etc., etc. Uh, and that's what makes me um, uh, very pessimistic about the, the state of the world at the present time. What makes me optimistic, and this may sound funny, but I mean it quite seriously, um, is the fact that very soon Avatar is going to be the biggest grossing film of all time. And I think that Avatar, um, while it's not a great work of art, is a film which has a serious and, and for me, very emotionally powerful spiritual message at its heart. And the spiritual message is about, if you like, a religion that we don't fully have yet, but I believe may be coming, um, which, is, which has a, a new revived sense of the sacred, where what's sacred is, uh, is the uh, web of, uh, of, of life on our planet. Uh, and I'd be interested in your views on whether this new and revived sense of the sacred is, uh, for you, um, a candidate, um, as it very much is for me. And as I say, it gives me hope that we may actually have a future. Uh, just, just for those people who haven't yet seen Avatar and to tease Rupert a little bit, Avatar is the story where the Native Americans win because no. they're, <laughs> where they're, led, they're led by a Jesus figure who is also a Marine. <laughs> Uh, question there. <laughs> if we're going to uh, distinguish within Christianity between sacred and profane, or at least look at religion and say, okay, there are different aspects to it, etc., we should also uh, take a closer look at uh, the secularization thesis. Now, there are many definitions of what secularization entails. That's the majority talked about a diminished role of churches as institutions within the public sphere. And most of them stay away from the private sphere. So, in a sense, there's a distinction within the secularization thesis about 
you know, be the savior of profane, definitely a public private or institutionalizing, non-institutionalized. So if you want to say, okay, I believe in the second religion thesis and non-institutionalized religion is not really religion, then you need to rethink perhaps how you define religion and what religion means to people. Thank you. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the, the distinction by, by the view of uh, Christian atheism, because uh, Christian atheist is probably honest, and modernity means that there are no longer rules, and you can have your Enrons and your bankers' rounds. And um, I haven't mastered Iris Murdoch's metaphysics as a guide to morals, but I do feel that the metaphysicians do, or if, if, if no religion, the metaphysicians ought to be providing us with a guide to morals, because otherwise... Otherwise, one's, one's eschatology is of the last human digging up the last plant for her last unavailing meal, yeah. rather than some great uh, triumphant return of, of, of our Lord. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd like to say, uh, I'd like to pick up on the point of uh, Dawkins and Hitchens. I don't think they are monopolists on the truth, and I certainly don't hold the banner to absolute truth. What they, tr what they try to point out is that if you have a sick patient, you can either choose to take a microscope and deal with the relevant tissue at a biological and microscopic level, or you can pray to the patient and pray that you may get better. So there's a chasm of difference between aiming for an absolute truth which is based on faith and aiming for a discourse, academically based, scientifically based, and scientifically argued, which may cure the sick patient. But I'm quite surprised that, that someone like Dawkins could be compared uh, you know, as a fundamentalist of truth. All he's saying is, look at the facts, be coherent, be consistent, and stop contradicting yourself by going into a hospital and then going into a church choose your path but be consistent and certainly don't hold the fundamentalist banner for those that prefer not to go to church <laughs> ok I think we'll uh, push on a bit uh, if we can um, Edward we, looking at what we've got here um, I think you're up to number 7 <laughs> ok should, should I should we no, I think that we, you don't, they're not like questions, they're, they're putting okay. their points. Can, okay. If you want to, if you want to, please do. Okay, well, um, okay, but well very, very quickly, I, th I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I do see the emergence of what may be a new <coughs> religious faith uh, out of the logical movement, um, the kind of pantheism. And I think, yeah, Avatar was a well, slightly sort of cheesy expression of that. Um, but, um, uh, um, and and yeah, I, I, I think there's potential there. Um, what form it will take exactly, no one knows. Um, I, yeah, I think it's important that it's a, it's a, it's an it's an imminent faith. I mean, it doesn't posit some transcendent God, um, um, and um, and therefore it's more in tune with the general sort of imminent character of modern life. Um, you know, um, well, that's interesting. It may, one one of the uh, ways in which I think religion is misunderstood today by uh, people who don't believe, by not all of them, uh, but by a lot of them, uh, by sort of scientifically minded people, 
is that the idea of God is the idea of an extra thing in the universe, which is everything. So the universe is everything we know about, plus one other thing which we don't know about, and you just have to believe in. And I think one of the attractions of uh, pantheism, of that imminent type, is that there's no addition to the ontology. And uh, I think that um, that that attractiveness is based on a really, really bad misunderstanding of, um, of a more orthodoxly <coughs> transcendent conception of divinity. Yeah, I mean the trouble with this is it does generally involve a sentimentalisation of nature. Mm-hmm. Nature can be pretty cruel. Um, so anyway, that's... Yeah. Okay, to you, number seven. Um, okay, so... Um, um, so, so secularisation, if, if, if secularisation <coughs> is happening, um, which is an open question of course, um, does I think raise uh, a problem for, for the question of the meaning of life. Um, but I'd like to contrast two different ways of how, how it raises a problem. Um, the first is the dominant secularist view. Um, and according to this, nature and human life as part of nature is in itself meaningless. It's a blind concatenation of causal forces. Um, it's we who create meaning. Um, but for most of human history, we've created this meaning naively without realising that we've, we're creating it. We've... Um, it said we, we project this meaning onto nature, this is one familiar metaphor, or we, we, we spread it on nature, like margarine. Um, we think it's out there, but it, in fact it's, it's us who created it and put it there. Um, yet now, so the story goes, uh, science, you know, meaning modern Western science, post-Galilean science, has revealed our true situation uh, to us. It's revealed the meaninglessness of the universe. Um, and um, there's, a nice, there's a nice poem by Yeats, which I came across recently, which, which expresses this very well, I think, called uh, um, Miru. Um, and, and the first few lines go, um, uh, Civilization is hooped together, brought under a rule, under the semblance of peace, by manifold illusion. But man's life is thought, and he, despite his terror, cannot cease ravening through century after century, ravening, raging and uprooting that he may come into the desolation of reality. Um, and that I think is a very nice expression of what, what Max Weber meant by, by the, the scientific disenchantment of the world. Um, and of course both Weber and Yeats were, were very influenced by Nietzsche, um, and that's a very Nietzschean poem. So, so the idea is that we, we, you know, we scrape away the projections, we scrape away the illusions and we finally come into the, the desolation of reality. And there are two possible responses to this discovery. Um, I mean, the, perhaps the most natural response is one of, you know, cosmic angst, vertigo, uh, sense of abandonment, you know, we're alone in the universe. Uh, um, you know, the eternal silence of those infinite spaces frightens me, Pascal said. Um, but we can also view it more optimistically. We can take this as a tremendous opportunity um, uh, to finally take responsibility for the creation of meaning ourselves. Um, uh, you know, there's no one out there telling us what the meaning of life is. We have to make it up for ourselves. And this is, I take it, the idea behind Nietzsche's Superman. Nietzsche's Superman is someone who takes responsibility for the creation of meaning and does so joyfully. Um, 
And and a kind of debasenichianism has tr- you know trickled into popular culture and advertising. You know, adverts continually tell us to you know recreate ourselves, redefine ourselves. Um, you know, um, usually by buying their product. But, um, okay. Anyway, this story is you know it's been dubbed by Charles Taylor, who wrote a marvelous book um, on secularization. It's, it's been dubbed the subtraction story. Um, so. Because you know, secularization is a process of subtraction. We we, we we scrape away the illusory meanings that we projected onto the world um, to reveal its inherent meaninglessness, and then we take responsibility for the creation of meaning ourselves. Now, I, I think this is all wrong. Actually, um, I think that a certain meaning is inherent in human life, if not the cosmos as a whole. Um, human life marks out certain activities as intrinsically important, intrinsically valuable, others as intrinsically unimportant. Um, it's not just a matter of choice or will, as you know, someone like Nietzsche would have it. Uh, and, and the philosopher Philippa Foote has written very eloquently about this. Um, uh, there's a discussion in her latest book on, on, on what she calls deep happiness. Um, she says, what, what makes happiness deep or trivial? And she says it's not, it's not just a matter of the quality of the happiness itself, it's a matter of its objects, the kinds of things that it's a response to. Um, uh, you know, you can't really be deeply happy over winning a game of tiddlywinks. That's, that's just not a logical possibility. Um, you know, deep happiness implies, you know, an object that's actually important, really important. Um, so we can make sense, she says, of the idea of someone devoting his life to to trivial superficial activities, things that actually don't matter, you know, certain kinds of academic philosophy, say. Um, and, and, and the point is that the, the, the passion or commitment with which this person devotes himself to those activities doesn't make them any more significant. They're, they're intrinsically trivial activities. Uh, whereas other things, you know, the birth of a child, say, are intrinsically important. Um, they're, they're marked out by human life as important. So, Human life won't bear just any old interpretation that we choose to foist on it. Uh, it singles out some things as meaningful, other things as, as trivial. Um, it has a has a certain intrinsic meaning. Um, okay, just just one more point, and then I'll finish. So, okay, so what you know what what's the role of religion then and secularization? How does this come into it? Um, well, I think religion is one way, the most important way of giving expression to this sense of the intrinsic meaningfulness of life. Um, and this expression is, needless to say, a mythological one, in the sense that you know, most of the things described by religion didn't actually happen. Um, but the meanings with which these religious ex- stories articulate and give expression to are genuine meanings. They aren't just made up. Um, so, for example, all human societies treat corpses with um, a certain reverence. You know, they don't just treat them as sort of rubbish to be thrown away. Um, and they give various different, you know, they, they, they embed various stories, you know, explaining why you should treat corpses with reverence. You know, perhaps the body is going to be resurrected, or, and so on and so forth. And these stories are mythological. But the, the, the sense of, of reverence or piety is, is, is natural um, and inherent to human life. Um, and my worry is this, that as, as religion declines, um, as secularization advances, 
these intuitions won't these intuitions of meaning won't go away, but because we lack any symbolic language for articulating them, their hold on us will become progressively weaker. Um, they'll be, so to speak, unhoused. Um, uh, we won't know what to do with them anymore. Um, so we might occasionally feel them, but, but we, because we don't know how to articulate them, because we don't have a symbolic language uh, into which they fit, we'll, we'll just dismiss them as you know, gut feelings or you know, merely subjective. Um, and so this is why, for instance, we're prepared to tolerate, you know, to go back to the subject of death, something like Gunther von Hagen's bodywork exhibitions, um, which I think most people coming from a more religious society would see as a, you know, as a, as a really um, uh, sort of tasteless mockery of the dead. Um, and we perhaps feel that too in lucid moments, but we don't know what to make of that intuition because we don't have the language for articulation. <coughs> So that, I think, is... Uh, this is the way in which secularisation has posed a problem for the meaning of life. It's not that it's made us realise that life has no intrinsic meaning. It's rather that it, it leaves us with no language to articulate that sense of intrinsic meaning. Um, so that's how I'd put the relationship between secularisation and the meaning of life. But I, I think Simon would, would um, put it rather differently. Yeah, um... I'm going to shift from the idea of talking about senses of an intrinsic meaningfulness to life, which I've, I've got nothing against, but I just don't, for, the, for, for articulating what I want to do, I'm going to use a different way of thinking about that meaningfulness, and we'll just talk about a life worth living, or living a worthwhile life. So, it's, it, I hope that what I'm getting hold of with that thought, that if you live a a, a life worth living. It's the same sort of thing that you want to talk about when you're talking about a, an intrinsically meaningful life. That it, I want to say that it genuinely is a life worth living. Okay, this, this thing, and not some second-rate um, uh, sop put in its place for whatever it is that you wanted. Because what um, you were proposing was that uh, religion is an attempt to articulate the sense of the intrinsic meaningfulness of our lives and then when it goes what would go would be uh, a coherent language for articulating that sense and um, now one of the things you might say that I want to do would be um, yes religion is one way of talking coherently about the meaning of life but not the only way and I'm now going to give you another way which will be doubt, undoubtedly a secular way okay? but I'm not going to do that quite because although I do think that um, I, mean, I, I'm, I think it's very important to understand that um, about, for me part of the point and understanding of abandoning the secularisation thesis is to realize that without being a believer you don't have to be an enemy of religion because you don't think it's the thing that's holding everything back and there is some sort of thing in the past that we're breaking away from and so on I'm not at the end of this but it's a transformation of my understanding of religiosity that will be going on in my life rather than uh, an abandonment of it um, and I've got, got great respect I think, I hope for, for believers but I personally don't get near them but I'm not, I don't think of myself as an enemy of religion and I do think that uh, religion can amount to uh, re leading a religiously significant life can be, amount to a life worth living or living a worthwhile life I definitely do believe that 
but I'm just going to hold on to this idea of a, living a worthwhile life now for a moment. Um, because I do hold something of the view that you were attributing to the, your opponent, which is the idea that uh, I don't think that what makes a life worthwhile is that the beliefs are insights into how things are. So I don't think of religious... I don't think of... Um, as the kinds of things that people say um, gives their life meaning uh, as best understood as statements of truths. I do think about it as a, a structure of organisation um, which we've created. So I, I will take that uh, as um, part of my view. And I also believe that it is the for better or worse, and I'm absolutely prepared to accept that for, in many ways it's for the worse, that kind of view has dominated in the 20th century. It dominates in this time after this changeover that I had in the quotation from Wiggins earlier, so that in our time we are more resistant than the 18th and 19th century knew how to be to mystical or metaphysical conceptions of human life and human history. And instead of thinking about them metaphysically or mystically, I, think, I do think about them in terms of whether we have managed or not to create a worthwhile life. And I do think about it as a creation and an invention in that sense. And I do have some sympathy with what Rupert was saying earlier when he was worried that we have failed to do that. But how can I then say, give a kind of account of what would make this life a worthwhile life? When, for example, I no longer have a discourse of modernity to fall back on, which it says that we're all moving progressively to some wonderful ideal world. Like, if, if, uh, remember, Wiggins begins, unless we are Marxists. If I was a Marxist, how nice that would be, because I would think that there was some end of history to come in which this is all resolved, and it's really, really brilliant and lovely and perfect. Well, I don't believe that. I don't think I, that I don't have a philosophy of history that would suggest to me that we're moving from some uh, impoverished condition of of um, illusion and delusion to one of enlightenment, clarity, and uh, uh, and 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 uh, the realization of a maxim maximally good life. So I'm not going to be able to fall back on a philosophy of history. Um, and I think that in our time, in the time that Wiggins is describing, which incidentally he does call a time after Darwin at one point, and I think that is an interesting point, um, he says, uh, we, we, we might think that all, we c all we've got is what um, a French philosopher, Jean-François Lyotard, calls optimization of the system, just improving efficiency. There's just nothing else. If you haven't got some, what he calls a meta-narrative, some grand conception overall in which you can place your life, then you're, you're, just, you're just destined to live in a life where uh, material satisfactions are all you have to go on and so on. Um, but I think that uh, if, even if we are in a position, which I think we are, uh, in which these meta-narratives are no longer credible, 
in which, as Nietzsche puts it, God is dead in some way, um, a sustainable society, a genuinely sustainable society, one which doesn't crash around our ears like this one nearly did a couple of years ago, um, has to create conditions um, in which people can think that they are living worthwhile lives. It is, and, and I am not of the view that you can create conditions in which people can think that they are living worthwhile lives and not have created conditions in which, to some extent, they are living well, well, worthwhile lives. I don't think we can have that degree of, uh, as it were, a false consciousness of ourselves. I do appreciate that there are lots of people... Um, no, I don't know. Uh, it seems that there may be lots of people who are content with shopping and so on as the be-all and end-all of things. And I, do, I remember watching a shopping channel recently where they uh, said, you know, this will solve the problems of this or that. And it was like the whole thing was, the idea was that everything, every problem you encounter in life could be resolved by buying something. Um, and th perhaps there are people who think that doing, living that kind of life is a wor worthwhile life. But I actually think it's rather shrinkingly small. And that um, if in a society in which all that's left for us in a certain way is optimising the performativity of the system, um, if, if, it, if it doesn't create a sense that I can live a worthwhile life in these conditions, then there will be revolt and strikes and people won't participate. You just can't go on indefinitely thinking genuinely to yourself that I'm not living a, wor a worthwhile life and that it's something <coughs> deeply systemic. Okay, so what is it then about a life that might be living a worthwhile life? And, and I haven't got very much to say about this, but there's a lovely passage in um, Wiggins' paper, David Wiggins' paper that we started with, where he contrasts two lives. And he wants to appeal to you to say, as a, somebody living a life, you're right, that one is a world worthwhile life, and the other one isn't, but without appeal to anything else. Okay, and there's examples of these. Um, there's a difference which we as participants that is we as people living in the world with each other in communities with a history and so on that we as participants insist on the difference between the life of a man who contributes something to a society with a continuing history and the life lived on the plan of a southern pig breeder who by in, apparently in the economic textbooks only not in real life the plan of a southern pig breeder who buys more land to grow more corn, to feed more hogs, to buy more land, to grow more corn, to feed more <coughs> hogs. So that, the life of that person lived on that plan and somebody, the life of a person who contributes something to a society with a continuing history. And he says, to, to the participants it may seem that it is far harder to explain what is so good about buying more land to grow more corn to feed more hogs to buy more land to grow more corn to feed more hogs than it is to explain what is good about digging a ditch with a man who one likes or helping the same man to talk or drink down the sun, drink the sun down the sky. It might seem to a participant that the explanation of the second sort of thing, so far from having nowhere to go but round and round in circles, which is the problem with that first kind of life, 
is that it fans out into a whole arborescence of concerns. Now that image of a worthwhile life as something that fans out into a whole arborescence of concerns seems to me just the sort of thing one might appeal to in a distinction between, for you in a life you're living, between a worthwhile life and one that isn't. And if your society isn't one which is such that the conditions make it possible for you to live such a life, I think that then, as it were, then that society will have failed you as a, a place worth living. Well, I mean, but that can't be the distinction. I mean, because, because the southern pig breeder might also have an arborescence of concerns. You know, he might invest in property. And no, 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 this guy know. didn't. This guy, that's all he did. <laughs> 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 okay, but... Uh, I mean, if you, if you want to say, actually, you haven't got a distinction because I want to make him sufficiently different that he's like the other one. I'm just saying, if, they, if you have given these two cases, and he said, actually, there is no such okay. person, it's a textbook. Okay. But if you take him as a sort of representative yeah. capitalist, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure it's the, it's the one, the one, one-track-mindedness of his life that makes it impoverished. It's, it's the sort of... It's the, well, it's the circularity. It's the circularity. But, but, that, but that might be compatible with having many concerns. Um, so... Yes, uh, yes. I'm not uh, sure. Anyway, but... Right, I mean, presumably what you're saying is that the, the life that appears to be an arborescence of concerns could be deeply a life of circularity. Could be, yeah. I mean, but, and I think that, that my, my claim is that, that, that that sort of argument is, I don't find convincing. What you've got there is an <laughs> argument that certain people are so profoundly misled about how things seem to them about how they are, Right. Now, th this kind of argument uh, is um, the diagnosis of alienation. There's a, a, a writer who I admire very much, who actually is a Marxist, called uh, Alex Kalinikos, who works at King's Over the Road, and he says this, and I think it's absolutely right, as, as it were, being wrong, but absolutely right about what he's wrong about. To, diagno to diagnose alienation is to draw a contrast between the present situation where the subject may be deeply misled by appearances into failing to recognise her loss and a counterfactual condition of authenticity where she has all the powers proper to her. And so you have to have the point of view, this magic point of view, which says that although your life seems to you to be precisely one that's worthwhile and a life worth living, actually it's not. <laughs> And I think that uh, lives worth living are a bit like colours, uh, colour perception. It, um, if in ordinary lighting conditions something looks red, its being red isn't something transcendentally different to that, in which it could turn out that you were profoundly misled about this. Because see, being red just is to seem red in certain uh, lighting conditions. And living a world well worthwhile life it isn't independent of the conditions, absolutely isn't independent of the conditions, but I don't think you can be so deeply misled that you think you're living at a certain point to live a worthwhile, to think you're living a worthwhile life is bound up with what it is to live a worthwhile life. So, so the stamp collector who's, you know, finds the meaning of life in collecting a complete set of all, you know, British stamps from 1900 onwards. Yeah. You know, is, is leading a world worthwhile well, life? I, 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 because he believes how it. close is that to the pig breeder? I don't um, know, because for participants we will distinguish between a life like 
of the pig breeder and a life of the sort that fans out into an arborescence of concern. And um, you, you immediately set up one which doesn't sound much like an arborescence of concern. Well, but on the other hand, well. on the other hand, um, I, I also, and this is one of the things that we aren't going to have time to talk about, I want to live in a world where if somebody wants to collect stamps, if that is his or her thing, then that, I am going to be content with that at a certain point. I think I'll be happy, unhappy if it was so completely general that, that as it were, that everybody was uh, content with that kind of thing. I, I don't know where I'd be in my head, but I don't, perhaps I don't, well, I think that there'll be revolt, there'll be revolt before we get there. What if someone takes the stamp of error here. I mean, someone might you know, take building a perfect stamp collection to be you know, the meaning of his or her life, but then you know, they'd, be, they'd, be, they'd be wrong about that. But, um, you know, but what they would be taking is they would be taking it for argument's sake mm. as sufficient for a worthwhile life. Mm. Um, I'm not saying, I'm not advancing that one, I hope you realise that, but we've got lots of questions. There's one, two, three, actually, tell you what, uh, have you sort of finished your bit? Yeah. 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 Okay. We are going to now really give ourselves over to you, and you can make contributions and, and suggestions as you please. Yeah. Yeah, we'll start there. Yeah. Yeah, I just have a question for both of you on the ah. issue of relationships. You don't seem to mention relationships. In the, I did. In the language, or in the, in the way we the world, or in the in of your examples of the uh, of the one role the relationships play yeah. in your own views of the meaning of life in this context. In, in the case that was given here, there's no special authority to this case. The pig breeder was on his own, and the life that was worth living was one in which there's something good about digging a ditch with a man one likes. What role do relationships play? Well, actually, the thing I worry about that one, uh, that example, because I think I do think Wiggins is a great place to start, never really a great place to stop. But uh, the um, digging a ditch with a man one likes—this is the shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder mode of being with another. Uh, in a way, what we're doing here is this kind of shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder thing. And the other way that I think is really, really important, he doesn't mention, is the face-to-face -face one, where, where where the social bond isn't just the shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder of manliness, as it were. No, I think relationships are crucial. I mean, I mean, well, Aristotle devotes two two books in his Ethics to, to, to friendship, and um, Confucius talks a lot about friendship too. So I think, yeah, on any reasonable conception of the good life, you know, friendship and love is going I to really, play a really central role. So. Okay, um, there. Yeah, my my experience of businessmen is that um, if they didn't get religion, there'd come a point where they'd get art, 
and the hog farmer would come home from the hog auction one day and say, hey honey, I didn't buy all these hogs, I bought an Edward Hopper picture of a man painting a hog auction. <laughs> I think what, what I worry about in what you're saying is that um, you seem to be tending towards, you're not quite yet, you seem to be tending towards saying, there is an answer to the question, what is a meaningful life? And somehow it will be a pretty strict answer. Now, I know you don't really think that, but you sometimes talk that way in what, what you've been saying. And I think that mirrors um, some of the difficulties about religion and religion. Religions, on the whole, give you a single package. The religion will give you the whole system. And I think what a lot of the rational scientists in the progress story thought they were doing was giving us a whole system. Mm. And, of course, that meant that every question you asked had to be answered through analysis, empirical evidence, and actually, if it didn't, if it couldn't be answered that way, it wasn't a good question. Hence, why Wiggins was so revolutionary. I want to talk about the meaning of life. Yeah. Philosophers didn't do that for 30 or 40 yeah. years. It just wasn't done. One more. But can, can I suggest just, just one thing that you might go on to from there? Instead of talking about what is an account of a meaningful life, which is really the meaningful life, which is the old religious idea, mm. You might actually begin to talk about, and this is what people like Tolstoy did, what meaningful things are there in life, and what can I do, and how do they begin to add up? And that gets you out of the problem of uh, tsunamis and earthquakes, because you know th these, these don't fit in. They don't have to fit into the narrative, because you're not implying that you've got the whole answer. So if you begin to look for the meaningful, then you can argue about those and say the stamp collector who collects without cheating his colleagues is actually a bit better uh -huh. than the guy who does it by stealing the stamps. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Than the Thank you. Yeah. Uh, there's one at the back, yeah. I, I, I have an answer, but it's, it's really, uh, I, I just thought of it at the weekend, and not because, uh, <laughs> and I wrote it down, and it was like one of those, it was like, I, I told it was like one of those dreams where you, you know, you get it in the night, and you write it down, and the next morning you've written, run down slowly, or something, you know, so, um, and I do have it, um, <laughs> but I'm not sure if I want to tell you about it. I'll tell you very, very quickly. Um, it's very embarrassing. I was hoping to get away with this one. In the 17th, 18th century, the dominant conception of what it is to be a human being in Europe was uh, often called the, the liberal conception. And uh, um, the liberal man, woman, is one who is a free, autonomous subject and who... Um, it freely devotes themselves as far as is possible to their uh, to fulfilling their potentials and that was understood in lots of ways in terms of domains of one's life in terms for example of uh, oneself as a political subject oneself as a, a devoted um, religious subject in terms of one's economic activity in terms of um, aesthetic appreciation and so on and all of these domains of one's life would have different norms and you'd have to there'd be trade-offs between them that you'd make sacrifices for one bit for, for, to another bit and so on well that conception of the subject 
was part of, of one of those philosophies of history, which I think has gone, and um, rushed into its place was, as I suggested, this idea of simply an optimization of the system. And this idea of optimization of the system was a business idea. Uh, the performativity, how efficient it is, came from business. And its most familiar face is uh, economic neoliberalism. And economic neoliberalism is neoliberal because it takes one bit of that liberal conception and tries to extend it without limit over the whole of life, and in this case, the economic dimension. So that which was appropriate to a business environment is now thought to be appropriate to the whole of your subjective life. And uh, I find that one an absolutely disastrous one, personally. Um, equally disastrous would be, um, a, as it were, just to use the language, but it, we don't, don't make much of it, political neoliberalism, which would have want the limitless extension of politics to, to the whole of uh, every sphere of life. And uh, another one, which is quite nice, but I still don't really like it, would be the romantic version, which would want to apply the aesthetic dimension to the whole of life. And you might have a moral one, which would apply the moral bit to the whole of life, and so on. And the one that I like best is, uh, if we're going to have one, is the philosophical neoliberal <laughs> who uh, uh, wants a limitless extension of the philosophical to every sphere of life. That is, that we will become maximally reflective in all those things that we do. And the interesting thing about the philosophical domain is that no norms are given. So all the rest has, it were, given norms. But this one, no norms are given. So what it is to lead that life is always in question. And I think that's the best. How's that? Oh, she's not interested. <laughs> I would just say, you know, Freud, Freud said love and work, and I think, yeah, I, I think he's right. <laughs> okay, up yeah, there. Uh, one of the major um, characteristics of religious life seems to be acts of communal worship, events in which there's communal worship, in which those, in which values are embodied, and I'm wondering if you can suggest some possibilities for uh, a similar event which would embody the meaningful life in, in your sense, in, in the sense we're talking about, in a, in a secular society. Do, do the events not happen anyway? So I'm not, which ones do you only get if you buy into the a religious worldview? Which ones do you get only if you buy into that? or involve yourself in that? Maybe I missed it. Well, fo football, maybe, for example. Would that be uh, an example of a secular public ritual? Oh, yeah. Oh. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, All right, another confession. Very brief. <laughs> um, I was in a car with some friends driving uh, to the coast in, in Scotland, and... Um, uh, uh, on, the, on the tape that they had made for their children it included the 1996 football coming home song and um, I remembered the pathos <laughs> associated with that song uh, that there, there was this sort of incredible drawing together of a, a social bond in, in, that, in that thought of uh, um, getting over this disaster and it was all going to be lovely but I mean I don't see. I, it may be that uh, 
a life without religion doesn't satisfy every dimension of a spiritual life. But I think that's probably every life will have dimensions of it which aren't satisfied. So I, I, I think that the idea of a regime without evil is impossible and the idea of a life which is in every dimension satisfactory is equally illusory. Now, the secular attempts to create public rituals have generally been pretty embarrassing. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, I think I... Yeah. I don't agree, actually. I think that you can enjoy something like singing in a choir or dancing with a group of people, acting in a play, creating works of art, literature, music, communally, and people who play in orchestras and all sort of things, string quartets, I'm sure they get the same sort of satisfactions people do perhaps worship in a church communally. Thank you, that's but what I should have said. I want to say other things as well. But um, <laughs> as an atheist, um, I can also um, disagree with something you said about there can't be a religion without God. Um, the well, other I didn't way say that. No, without me, sorry. Like, what did you say about God? Without <laughs> practice. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think you said that... Without public practice. That's right. Some without, shared that's system right. of symbols. So the other yeah. way around, sorry. What I wanted to say is I can envisage people who believe very sincerely in God or gods without practicing. They don't actually adhere, or may, they may have at one time belonged to somebody religion, but they may have rejected it and they continue to believe in a, in a deity. I mean, I don't believe in such a deity, but I can conceive of people who do, and they practice privately, and people have talked about private, private practice, and I think that that is certainly something which is meaningful to them. And I also wanted to just say one other thing, which is about meaningful um, things in life, and how you express them. You, you were saying that if you don't have religion, it may be impossible to express um, spirituality or um, really appreciate and in a, in a public way what is so important about living. I think people who are great artists, great scientists, they do that in their work. They are, exp they are expressing um, something about you know, the very, very important things that, we, that, that we've both been talking about, but they've been expressing them in poetry, literature, in scientific thought, in philosophical thought. I think that all these things that you've been talking about can be done without religion. I don't think we need religion. Thank you. Yeah. There's a dichotomy in um, Ed's presentation um, between meaning that you make. And Sorry, I can't hear. Between meaning that we make hmm. and meaning that is, as it were, intrinsically there. Um, I just, it just strikes me that the fact that something may be universally observed in human beings doesn't exactly mean we don't make it. Birds make nests um, pretty universally, and it could be human beings make reverence for corpses and so on. Um, second observation about your discussion is that in a sense, the positive account of value you gave was around the edges, a reverence towards liminal situations such as corpses. Um, there's a big question about how that feeds into how we actually live in a positive sense. Saying we should be reverent to these general sources of meaning is a different thing from giving a positive account of what either a better or a more meaningful life might be like. Um, I think on, on Simon's presentation, 
um, what I was struck by is that the way you set things up, where you have shopping on the one hand and meaning of life on the other, is out of a tradition which briefly runs Kant, Levinas, Heidegger, that you shop and have. But there's a very clear cut in values between the moral, the authentic, takes various forms, and well-being, the everyday. Uh, it's a very anti-Aristotelian account, where, if you like, meaning is going through quotidian activity. There isn't a kind of separate name. And, I, and I'm fully exaggerating the difference, but I mm-hmm. think there is quite a radical... Digging the ditch was pretty made. quotidian, no? Dig, digging the ditch with a friend was quite quotidian. Yeah, okay. Uh, one, one hit, thanks. Uh, yeah. But you're not only trapped, trapped, you're also enabled, right? So every tradition will produce a kind of limitation, but it also produces the conditions of possibility. You know, when Sartre said uh, Christianity, not alone Christianity, but Christianity um, is still, whatever he said, uh, um, controlling for our, very slightly, he said, for our thinking, more for our imagination above all for our sensibility these, um, these, these framing ways of thinking and feeling um, uh, are ones which are point of, points of departure for you and it's true that you can't just lump yourself in any old tradition and say right I'm going to be a samurai warrior now and have those kinds of thoughts you can't do that but you don't have to think of those uh, limits as limitations they're also enablers And maybe, maybe one thing on that is that you, you, uh, one of the things that we might want to uh, think is a, a, a something worth hanging on to is that we come from a tradition in, what, in which what's handed down to us are tools with which we can reflect on and criticise the very tradition that handed them down. That idea of a critical tradition is very interesting and, and philosophy... As when I said earlier the philosophical was the point where the norms could be in question I think that's a profoundly important feature of our worthwhile life just, just quickly to respond I mean you're right um, I mean, reverence for corpses say is not something you know, radically independent of us in the sense that if we cease to exist it would also cease to exist but given that we do exist it's not something that we have much choice over. I mean, it's um, that, that's how I'd put it. So it's, it's not independent in, the, in that very strong sense, but but it is independent of, of you know uh, our, our, our choices. Um, uh, and in answer to your question, I, I mean, yes, I agree. I mean, private devotion is possible, um, but isn't it usually going to be parasitic upon some memory of? more public religious practice, uh, you know, in childhood, say. Um, I mean, it draws on those symbols and those gestures. And it's not going to be passed on um, if, it's, if it's purely private. So I, I think this is, yeah, this is a parasitic phenomenon. It's not sustainable in the long run, this 
kind of purely private devotion. Okay, just time for one more. Right, uh, yeah. Yeah, can I have a oh, okay, time for two more. <laughs> Keep it quick. Okay. Uh, yeah, sorry. Hidden. One of the things that we didn't talk about, which we probably should have talked about, I, I, I think that I don't want to be part of a community that is one, or a community that is one. I don't. And you might. But we've got one more question. Yeah. May I just come back, back to the hog breeder who keeps doing what he's doing, yeah. some more of that. Um, how would you think, or do you think, the meaning of life of Bill Gates changed subjectively and objectively when he stopped doing what he was doing quite well and gave it all up, not the money didn't even count I think, but the fact that he committed his time, his life basically and that of his wife to doing good and saving two million people every year I mean that's the question Well, mine, It's easier for me because uh, I'm sufficiently subjectivist, although I hope you realise not completely uh, sufficiently so that uh, I would like to know what he thought and if he, if he experienced it as a kind of transformation of his life from one which was more like the pig breeder to one which had an arborescence of concerns then uh, I would take that as at least a starting point for thinking that it had he might just have got off one treadmill and got onto another okay. <laughs> All right, that's charity good. treadmill yeah, yeah. ok right thanks very much for everybody's attention